The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Zendo. For more information, visit villagezendo.org. My name is Gesho, and I'm speaking to you from Provincetown, Massachusetts, um, where I'm, I'm here with my dog and my parakeet. Uh, so you might see some fluttering back there behind me, um, and you might hear some parakeet sounds. <laughs> Um, or even dog sounds. Uh, it's, I just, you know, I just, I think I would like to take a moment to thank everyone who's in the physical Zendo. I mean, everyone who's here, of course, um, but we've come to take the coming together of our online community, not exactly for granted, but as part of our, just a regular practice and uh, the, the extra effort people have made to arrive at the physical Zendo where I believe Bokushu has had to set up residence. He's fulfilling so many roles all at once. Um, so I just want to thank you all for supporting the physical part of our practice as well as the virtual part of our practice. A monk asked Yun Men, when the tree withers and the leaves fall, how is it? Yun Men said, body exposed in the golden wind. So last Sunday, we had a memorial service for our Sangha member, Elena Yuka Taurka. And I know many of you were there. Um, and although we all had a chance uh, after the formal Zen service, to tell stories about Yuka and to express our appreciation for her life, I found that I was not ready uh, to speak yet. The last time I saw her, just a week or so before her death, she was still so vital and alive, so exactly herself, that I found it hard to really take in that she is gone. On that last visit, I forgot my phone, um, and I was down in the lobby uh, before of her building before I realized I didn't have it. Uh, so I had to go back upstairs, and she was just uh, sitting there waiting for me <laughs> in her wheelchair at that moment and laughing. Um, so even though I was at her burial and participated with many people in uh, covering her body with earth, a part of me still expects her to be right there where I left her laughing. And Yuka's been on many of our minds. Um, Doran spoke about her in a wonderful Dharma talk a week before the memorial. Uh, and yesterday, Ryotan Roshi evoked her with the image of a peony flower in full bloom, pointing out to us that it was no less a peony when it was a seed and no less luminously a peony when it was decaying and in the compost, nourishing new life. I remember when my mother died, um, 
I had a sensation, something like that. Suddenly, my mother's life wasn't a story that culminated in her illness and death. That was no longer the meaning of her life. Instead, her whole life from birth, maybe from before birth, um, her childhood, her adolescence, her young adulthood, her middle age, all of it uh, was equal perfectly even. It was all perfectly there and alive. And there was no one moment that defined her story anymore. All of her moments were full to the brim with her whole life. I had expected, uh, planned even, <laughs> to give a talk about the Platform Sutra which uh, I've been rereading recently. It was our study text several years ago. And if you weren't, uh, if you weren't uh, part of that group studying it then or haven't encountered it, it is one of the fundamental documents of early Chan, of the Chinese roots of our practice. And ostensibly the Platform Sutra is a record of a talk um, given by our sixth Chinese ancestor, Huineng. Uh, summing up his teachings. But most likely it was not exactly that. Most likely it was compiled and composed later, possibly by several different people. And we don't know exactly at this point when it was composed or what uh, its true history is. But the earliest manuscript that we have uh, dates to about the year 780. And Huaining himself lived from 638 to 713. So that can just give you a sense of... Uh, of how we're traveling back in time. Uh, and I often return to the Platform Sutra because of the way it expresses a simple and direct understanding of Chan practice, of our Zen practice. In the time since she died, I've been thinking a great deal about Yuka's practice. As she neared the end of her life, it seemed sometimes that she was engaged in continuous practice, that there was no longer any separation between her practice and her life. One of the passages of the Platform Sutra that reminds me of Yuka is, one practice samadhi means at all times, whether walking, standing, sitting or lying down, always practicing with a straightforward mind. The Vimalakirti Sutra says, a straightforward mind is the place of, of enlightenment. A straightforward mind is the pure land. Don't practice hypocrisy with your mind while, while you talk about being straightforward with your mouth. If you speak about one practice samadhi with your mouth, you don't practice with a straightforward mind. You're no, but you don't practice with a straightforward mind. You're no disciple of the Buddha. Simply practice with a straightforward mind and don't become attached to any Dharma. This is what is meant by one practice samadhi. So that was uh, Red Pine's translation. Um, and because I don't read classical Chinese, although it's one of my very most impossible aspirations to someday be able to do that. Um, I often like to read across different translations as a way of just hearing it in a, putting it in the air in a different way. Uh, so this is uh, Philip Yampolsky, Yampolsky's uh, translation, which is the one that we used in our um, 
in our study. The samadhi of oneness is straightforward mind at all times, walking, staying, sitting, and lying. The Chin Ming Ching, which is another uh, name for the Vimalakirti Sutra, says, straightforward mind is the place of practice. Straightforward mind is the pure land. Do not, with a dishonest mind, speak of the straightforwardness of the Dharma. If, while speaking of the samadhi of oneness, you fail to practice straightforward mind, you will not be disciples of the Buddha. Only practicing straightforward mind, and in all things having no attachments whatsoever, is called the samadhi of oneness. So in the last few years, I had the opportunity to be around Yuka's practice quite a bit. Most mornings, she joined the online Zando. She often kept her camera off as she was no longer able to sit upright after a certain point. But usually she turned it on to say good morning to all of us. Sitting itself, whether upright or lying down, and sitting with the Sangha was very important to her. And in fact, any time uh, we were able to visit her, I was able to visit her. The one thing uh, that she most wanted to do with other people was sit together to do Zazen. Um, everything else was a bit of a chore for her sometimes. <laughs> uh, the effort of the, of the small space of sociality. Um, but Zazen to her was really fundamental. Right before the COVID lockdowns, lockdowns, COVID, sorry, right before the COVID lockdowns, you could pull together a small group. It was kind of a mutual support group for creativity and making art. Uh, she eventually named it Maw for Moving Arts Women, but she also clearly had a firm sense of that other meaning of the word Maw. <laughs> And when the lockdown started, we moved that group online and met every couple of weeks, uh, right up until the time of her death. I didn't start, think, start out thinking of that group as a form of practice, but I came to see it that way. Yuka led the group and set the tone. We always sat for five minutes at the beginning and then went around council style, each speaking from the heart. Only after that did we open into conversation, but still within the tone of practice that Yuka had set. And at some point during her illness, as she was getting weaker, it seemed that Yuka needed more material help and support. Yuka hated to be helped. It made her feel frustrated and angry. And yet it seemed that help was needed. <laughs> so a new group formed to try and organize visits and support. But soon that group too became a form of practice. It was informally known as the complaint group and it followed that same format. We sat first, then we spoke council style. But in this group, we were especially invited to lean into our uncomfortable emotions and not edit out the difficulties of our lives. Yuka needed a place to express the difficult truths of her life, but of course, we all did as well. Soon it was clear that the group, which had been intended to support Yuka, had become a place where she could help support us. 
personally, I did not find this practice easy. <laughs> and I often wanted to skip this group, but I rarely did. As a number of people said last Sunday, Yuka's straightforward mind sometimes made her difficult for others. She felt injustices passionately, and she wasn't afraid to point them out. She had no, no patience uh, for denial of any kind. As a small child, she'd been diagnosed with juvenile arthritis and had many difficult encounters with doctors and hospitals. In her 20s, her wrists had, been, had to be fused. And all her life, she felt different. And that gave her a special empathy with all forms of difference. She educated the Sangha in disability and crip studies. She kept a sharp eye on gender relations in the Zendo. She led a series of workshops for white work on racism, along with Joran and Kyogen. Within the Sangha, she often spoke out on issues of inclusion, equity, and the ongoing need to work on ourselves and each other. In her artistic work, Yuka often dealt with the uncomfortable emotions of motherhood. She owned those feelings in herself and gave solidarity and encouragement for others to do the same. She experienced herself as not beautiful by conventional standards, and she fought against those standards and how they are wielded. But personally, I always did find her beautiful. She never believed that, though. She dealt, frankly, with questions of sexuality and aging. One of her last big projects was called The Fountain of Olds, playing against the fountain of youth. For Yuka, I would say that all of this was part of her straightforward practice. It was part of her intimacy with reality. You cannot practice straightforwardly by turning away from the aspects of reality that you don't like. Near the end of her life and after her death, I heard many people express how much Yuka had taught them. She was not a formal teacher. Shortly after her time as Shuso, she started experiencing symptoms of the illness that would end her life. So she didn't have a chance to continue her formal Zen training. At some point, she mentioned that she was continuing to meet with Ryotan Roshi regularly, but had stopped studying koans. My koan is death, she said. She faced that koan so straightforwardly. The great koan of death became her practice, and she taught all of us through that practice, through her talks and through her writings. In February, she wrote in her blog, I worry how it is for you, and by you she meant all of us, <laughs> I worry how it is for you to really see into the mess I have become. I consult my Zen teacher and he says, body exposed in the golden wind, and nothing hidden. References to koans that upend our preferences for glamour and cover. We speak of loss and what is left, only love. So we come back to that koan where we started. This isn't actually the first time I've talked about this koan, maybe... Maybe it's uh, it's one I'll keep talking about. I don't know. It's it's uh, it's always present for me. 
A monk asked Yun Men, how is it when the tree withers and the leaves fall? Yun Men said, body exposed in the golden wind. Yuka always lived with her body exposed. The closer she came to death, the more she lived in the golden wind. The golden wind sounds like a beautiful thing, and it is, but it's not the thin beauty of picking and choosing what we like. The golden wind contains everything. It becomes golden by including all of life and all of death. The koan of death is difficult, perhaps the most difficult koan of all. Is it the same as the koan of life or is it different? I really couldn't say. Yuka spoke of death and dying frequently, even when others didn't want to hear it. And I didn't always want to go there. In our practice, working with koans doesn't mean explaining them. It means embodying them thoroughly and expressing them thoroughly. For Yuka's straightforward mind, practicing the koan of death meant seeing it squarely with all it had to offer. She expressed her anguish, her anger, her sorrow, her frustration. She also expressed her humor and her joy. All of this the body exposed, the golden wind. So I've been reading a novel while I'm here. Um, it's called Pure Color by Sheila Hetty. It's a short and beautiful book. Um, I haven't finished it, so I can't give you an overview of it. But uh, I was struck by this particular passage um, as I was reading it uh, a couple of days ago. So in this book, the main character's beloved father dies. He's sort of the light of her life. And uh, I'm going to read you this passage. She doesn't know how to think about her father's death, or even if she should, or how to explain the great joy and calm that settled in her the moment the life left his body. And she felt his spirit enter her and fill her up with joy and light. There was a moment when there was nothing, no life in him left. Then the spirit that had been her father entered her. It came in through her chest and she felt it there in her entire body, near the top of her skull, down in her toes, swirling wonderfully inside her. And the peace she knew after it settled inside her was the cleanest feeling of love, a brightness that finally compelled her to sit up having felt it swirling long enough that it now seemed time to share it, to go downstairs and hug her uncle and tell him, dad is dead, and to try and hug him close enough that maybe he could feel it too, her father's love that was streaming through her. This character, Mira, had been holding her father when he died. When Yuka died, her daughter Vita was holding her. And I'm not suggesting that Vita felt something like this because death hits each person so uniquely. Uh, I don't know at all what Vita's experience was. And I'm not saying that I feel it this way either. Exactly. But the vivid aliveness that was Yuka does feel like it is still swirling around in me and in everything. 
Yucca is lost to us absolutely and definitively. And at the same time, not lost. And this is like one of the weirdest, like sort of cliches of, 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 of memorializing someone. And, and it is strange to find myself uh, sort of inhabiting that and saying that. And it reminded me of a, a blog post that uh, Yuka wrote a while back where she was talking about at the different stages of her Zen practice, at, at each new stage, she would go, oh, it's really true. So I'm feeling that now about her loss and not loss. Oh, it's, it's really true. <laughs> How is it when the tree withers and the leaves fall? All of our bodies exposed in the golden wind. And when I see her last, Radiant in pain and exhaustion, she is laughing. 